I'm Emily Kate, and this is We the Voters. Hi, and welcome to episode eight of the We the Voters podcast. We the Voters is a podcast where I take hot topics in U.S. culture and break them down from opposite opinions. I'm your host, Emily Kate Topcheski. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief at We the Voters, which is basically a fancy way of saying that this project is just me, so I wear a lot of hats. I'm a podcaster, editor, producer, writer, filmmaker, photographer, web designer, travel coordinator, social media manager, and the list goes on. We the Voters began in 2019 when I set off on the road to understand the ways U.S. citizens are more alike than different. This podcast is my next step in bridging the ways we listen and talk about the other side no matter what side you're on. So if you're a new listener, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. In this week's episode, I want to talk about a topic that's been quite contentious in recent weeks, the $15 minimum wage. The move to a higher minimum wage is being debated around political arenas and kitchen tables across the country. In the next hour, I'll take myths apart and find the facts about the proposed $15 minimum wage. We'll take a look at two opposite opinions, One in support of raising the minimum wage, saying that it will improve the economy and workers' lives. And then one against raising the minimum wage, saying that it will harm the economy and small businesses as a whole. But before we look at these opinions, let's ground our discussion with some basic facts about labor rights and a history of their role in the United States. In 2020, there were approximately 160 million people in the civilian labor force. The civilian labor force is defined as employed and unemployed Americans of working age in the U.S., This labor force does not include military personnel, retirees, agricultural workers, federal employees, or discouraged workers. 61.7% of the civilian population are currently working or looking for work. The unemployment rate in the U.S. rose to 8.1% last year, and it is projected to fall to 3.5% in 2021. Workers today have numerous protections that were not granted to workers 100 years ago. Many of these rights were won by the efforts of activists and coordinated groups of workers called labor unions. Labor unions grew out of the need to protect workers' interests. Unions are groups of workers who use collective bargaining to protect and further rights for all workers. National groups have influenced legislation throughout history, including landmark legislation like the civil rights protections. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, was established in 1965 after civil rights legislation was signed into law. The EEOC oversees federal laws that prohibit workplace discrimination in the U.S. These laws protect both job applicants and employees from discrimination or harassment in the workplace because of race, religion, sex, gender, sexual orientation, pregnancy, national origin, age, disability, or health background. It also protects applicants and employees from being denied workplace accommodations for disability or religious beliefs. Under federal laws, employees have a right to equal pay for equal work. The EEOC also protects employees, enforcing that they have the right to report discrimination or participate in lawsuits without punishment from their employer. Over U.S. history, workers have fought for these rights and more through workplace stoppages, strikes, and other negotiations. The earliest form of unions came as shoemaker and barrelmaker guilds organized in 1648. Almost a century later, the first strike happened in New York in 1741. New York bakers stopped working in protest of the local government setting the price of bread. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, various groups began to organize for workers' rights. They protested unfair labor conditions, wages, and more. In 1828, the first workingmen's parties formed to try and elect candidates who were favorable to unions. These candidates promoted a 10-hour workday, free public education, and ending debtors' prisons. 
President Van Buren signed an executive order establishing a 10-hour workday in 1840. This executive order required a limited workday without a pay decrease. Before this executive order, and in many cases after it, many employees worked 12-hour days seven days a week with limited protections and appalling workplace conditions to earn a living. In 1866, the National Labor Union was founded. This organization was the first national organization dedicated to workers' rights. It was largely focused on fighting for a mandated eight-hour workday. Nationwide, it would not be largely achieved for all employees until decades later. But two years later, Congress established an eight-hour workday for government employees. This law did not extend to all workers and was not regularly enforced. In 1877, workers began to strike across the country as part of the Great Upheaval or the Great Railroad Strike. These strikes were in response to wage cuts, working conditions, and unemployment. The effort lasted 45 days, and by the end of the strike, about 100 people were killed and 100,000 workers participated. In 1881, about 3,000 Black women laundry workers conducted a strike in Atlanta, Georgia. This stoppage is remembered as one of the largest and most effective strikes in the South. In 1886, the American Federation of Labor, or AFL, is formed. This group was focused on wages and incremental demands that can be achieved through collective bargaining. It slowly grew over coming decades to encompass millions of members. In 1890, Congress passed the Sherman Antitrust Act. This act prohibited business activities that interfered with the free market. In 1898, Congress passed the Erdman Act. This act expanded on the 1888 law that regulated labor relations in the railroad industry. The 1888 Act ensured arbitration and investigation by a federal review board. The Erdman Act added additional sections, including barring companies from firing workers based on union membership. Following the turn of the 20th century, workers continued to strike for better pay, better hours, and more humane working conditions. In 1903, Congress created the Department of Labor and Commerce. This department was created to investigate business practices, ensure fair trade, support commerce practices, and rectify labor issues. The Secretary of Labor and Commerce was made a member of the president's cabinet. The two departments were separated by Congress a decade later. Back in 1908, the Supreme Court struck down part of the Erdman Act of 1898. The section in question banned yellow dog contracts, which were agreements between companies and workers that blocked union membership. The court ruled that banning yellow dog contracts was unconstitutional. It limited the regulation of private businesses. The next year, garment industry workers went on strike for 11 weeks in New York. This strike, which included almost 30,000 workers, was ultimately seen as successful. Employers granted their workers shorter work weeks, anti-discrimination clauses, and wage negotiation opportunities. In 1911, 146 garment workers died in a factory fire after being locked inside by the company's owners. The fallout from this tragic fire led to new safety regulations and updates to New York's labor laws. In 1914, mine workers went on strike for months in Colorado to protest inhumane working conditions. They faced numerous punitive actions from the company that employed them. This strike is known today as the deadliest strike in U.S. history. It culminated with the Ludlow Massacre, where the National Guard and local militia members attacked the strikers' colony with machine guns and fire. Numerous people died during this strike. A government commission later investigated the events, granting support for union demands like an eight-hour workday and ending child labor. In 1916, Congress passed the Adamson Act. This act is the first of its kind to regulate hours in private businesses. It established the eight-hour workday in the railroad industry and mandated additional pay for overtime work. In 1932, Congress passed the Norris LaGuardia Act. This act barred contracts that blocked employees from joining a union, also called yellow dog contracts. It also blocked federal courts from stopping nonviolent labor strikes. 
This act is seen by many workers as a great victory for the unions. The next year, Congress passed the National Recovery Act. Section 7 of this act granted most private sector employees the right to join a union and participate in collective bargaining. Shortly following this act being passed, the Supreme Court declared Title I of the National Recovery Act unconstitutional. During the Great Depression, workers across the United States striked repeatedly to gain numerous benefits for fellow employees. These objectives included recognizing labor unions, improved working conditions, wage increases, and work hour limits. The combined efforts of these strikes led to the National Labor Relations Act in 1935. This act guaranteed the right of private sector employees to organize unions, bargain collectively, and strike. It also banned workplace discrimination against employees who were part of unions or who filed charges against their employer. This act is seen as one of the U.S. labor movement's greatest victories. It also established the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB. This board oversees union representative elections and investigates unfair workplace practices. This same year, Congress passed the Social Security Act. This act provided federal assistance for the elderly and low-income families with children. It also established unemployment insurance. In 1936, Congress passed the Walsh-Healy Act. This law established safety, minimum wage, overtime pay, and child labor standards on all federal contracts. Labor activists continued to strike through the remainder of the 1930s, seeking additional protections for workers nationwide. In 1938, Congress passed the Fair Labor Standards Act. This act mandated an eight-hour workday and a 40-hour workweek. It also established time-and-a-half pay for overtime hours and a national minimum wage. World War II brought about a boom in the manufacturing industry across the U.S. as many companies shifted gears to wartime materials. AFL and CIO, two major labor unions, agreed to a no-strike pledge for the duration of the war. In 1943, Congress passed the Smith-Connolly Act. This act restricted labor rights, including collective bargaining and organizing. This act failed to become law after it was vetoed by President Roosevelt. Following World War II, more than 6 million workers went on strike, the largest strike in the country's history. These strikes aired numerous grievances from the wartime efforts, primarily around wages. In 1947, Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act. This act rolled back many advancements gained a decade earlier with the Wagner Act. This act banned secondary strikes and boycotts, wildcat strikes, and federal strikes. It also allowed states to pass right-to-work laws. Two years later, an amendment was made to the Fair Labor Standards Act. This amendment officially prohibited child labor across the United States. In 1955, AFL merged with CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, to become AFL-CIO. This merger created the world's largest labor organization, focused on advocating for workers' rights. Four years later, Congress passed Landrum-Griffin, the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act. This legislation created regulations surrounding union elections and finances. It was meant to prevent corruption and create democracy within unions across the United States. In 1962, President Kennedy signed an executive order that granted federal employees the right to collectively bargain. Following this order, many states permitted state employees to join unions through the following two decades. The next year, Congress passed the Equal Pay Act in 1963. This act was an amendment to the Fair Labor Standards Act passed 25 years earlier. It barred wage discrimination based on sex, which sought to address wage disparities between the sexes. In 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act. Title VII of this law banned workplace discrimination based on race, sex, religion, or national origin. Age and disability were later included under this title. Workplace safety regulations were established in 1970 with the Occupational Safety and Health Act. 
This act founded OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to enforce health and safety regulations in the workplace. In 1983, Congress passed the Migrant and Seasonal Agricultural Worker Protection Act. This act ensured labor rights for farm workers. Strikes continued through the end of the 20th century and the turn of a new one as unions continued to advocate for workers' rights nationwide. In 2005, seven national unions disaffiliated from the AFL-CIO. These unions represented 6 million workers. They formed a new coalition called Change to Win, which was devoted to organizing. Four years later, Congress passed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. This law protects workers from wage discrimination. Under this 2009 law, each paycheck serves as its own discriminatory act. It essentially restarts the clock, allowing the worker to file a discrimination claim within 180 days of each paycheck. In 2011, thousands of protesters gathered in New York City and nationwide as part of the Occupy Wall Street movement. This movement sought to bring attention to growing income inequality in the U.S. It was fundamentally directed against capitalism and what activists call the 1%. The next year, the fight for 15 began in New York City. This movement for a $15 minimum wage began when 200 fast food workers across the city walked off the job to demand $15 an hour and union rights. In 2018, strikes began nationwide against Marriott, a global hotel chain. These strikes were organized by workers to bargain for higher wages, job safety, and job security against automation and technology. Around 7,700 workers participated in these strikes at 23 hotels across the U.S. That same year, a wave of teacher strikes began across the United States. These strikes were called Red for Ed strikes because strikers wore red t-shirts to show solidarity. These strikes fought for better wages and support throughout the education system. Strikes were held in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, Kentucky, North Carolina, Colorado, and Georgia. Which brings us to today. Today, activists have continued the Fight for 15 both nationwide and around the world. This labor movement seeks to raise the minimum wage to $15 per hour for what they call underpaid workers in a wide variety of professions, including teachers, home health aides, retail employees, fast food workers, and more. In 2018, 2.1% of all hourly paid workers, about 1.7 million people, had wages at or below the current federal minimum wage. 29 states and the District of Columbia have set higher minimum wages within their jurisdictions to address wage disparities. The federal minimum wage was first introduced during the Great Depression. It was originally set at 25 cents per hour. This wage has been increased by Congress 22 times. Most recently, it was updated from $6.55 to $7.25 an hour in 2009. A federal $15 minimum wage has been debated within the most recent COVID-19 stimulus package. Supporters in Congress say that a higher minimum wage would benefit workers and stimulate the economy. Opponents suggested that it would cripple small businesses and thus harm workers in the long term. Ultimately, the amendment failed in the Senate with a 42-58 vote. Overall, the Pew Research Center reports 67% of Americans favor raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. But when looking at the demographics, the American public appears split along party lines on raising the minimum wage. 86% of Democrats and Democrat-leaning independents support raising the federal minimum wage. On the other hand, only 43% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents agree. Proponents of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour say that the current federal minimum wage is too low for workers to live on. Supporters say that raising the wage will create jobs and grow the economy. On the other hand, opponents to raising the minimum wage say that wage increases will cause businesses to close or lay off workers. Proponents say that increasing the wage will make it more difficult for workers to find jobs or find better ones.
After the break, we'll take a look at the first side of this debate in support of raising the federal minimum wage. Then we'll take a look at the opposing side of the debate. But first, let's take that break. And we're back. Approximately a third of Americans in the civilian labor force are millennials. This generation accounts for the largest group of workers today. Millennials are seen as facing a different world than previous generations in many ways. Some experts say they face technology advancements, stagnant wages, high student loan debt, and exponential raises in cost of living than previous generations faced. The wage gap between college-educated workers and those without college degrees is growing. The Pew Research Center found that college graduates aged 25 to 37 earned almost $25,000 more a year than people in the same age range without a college diploma. This earnings gap was significantly smaller in previous generations. However, some proponents point out that while these college-educated workers make more money, they are also saddled with more debt, as the cost for higher education has risen but wages have not. Supporters say that by raising the federal minimum wage, it would be possible to support all workers, those in the labor force today and those who will be entering it in the coming decades. They cite three major benefits for raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. These are, one, raising the minimum wage would support workers and reduce the number of people living in poverty. Two, raising the minimum wage would encourage job growth and support businesses. And three, raising the minimum wage would aid the economy, reducing public spending and increasing tax revenue. Let's take a look at each of these reasons one by one. First, that raising the minimum wage would support workers and reduce the number of people living in poverty. When Congress first passed the Fair Labor Standards Act during the Great Depression, it established a federal minimum wage. This wage was declared, quote, workers will receive wages sufficient to maintain the minimum standard of living necessary for health, efficiency, and general well-being, unquote. In 1968, the federal minimum wage was $1.60 an hour. This has a value of just over $12 in 2021 dollars. In comparison, the current federal minimum wage is set at $7.25 an hour. This shows that the minimum wage today is 40% less than it was worth in 1968. Supporters say that wages have not increased in line with inflation, expenses, and cost of living, and this attrition impacts the daily lives of millions of Americans across the United States. In 2020, the U.S. determined that the poverty threshold for a one-person household was $13,465 a year. This number varies based on household size and how many dependents are in the household. According to the U.S. Census, 10.5% of Americans were living below the poverty threshold in 2019. Approximately 34 million Americans lived in poverty that year. Among those people living at or below the poverty threshold, nearly 56% were women. 25% were adults 25 or older who did not graduate from high school. And about a third did graduate but never attended college. As of 2019, 41.8% of Americans living in poverty are white. 27.9% are Hispanic. 23.5% are black. And 4.4% are Asian. More than a quarter of those living in poverty are under 18. That is more than 10 million children across the U.S. 12.3% are 65 years old or older. Of those in the labor force age range, 18 to 64, 12.3% worked full-time for the entire year. About a quarter of people worked part-time. And 60.4% of people did not work for at least one week during the year. A single person working full-time all year at the federal minimum wage would earn a gross income of just over $15,000. 
this salary is less than $2,000 above the poverty threshold for a one-person household in 2019. Supporters say that by raising the minimum wage, you could create income security for millions of Americans nationwide and lift about 900,000 workers above the poverty threshold. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says new higher wages could raise the incomes of 17 million people, increasing earnings to about $509 billion over 10 years. The office also reports that another 10 million people who currently make close to $15 an hour could also see increases on their paychecks, totaling more than 25 million workers who will benefit from a wage increase. Six of the 10 states with the highest poverty rates use the federal minimum wage. Two more of these states have set a state minimum wage of $9 or less. On the other hand, six of the 10 states with the lowest poverty rates have wages set above the federal minimum. 29 states in D.C. have set minimum wages higher than the federal minimum, and in 18 states in D.C., the minimum wage is automatically adjusted each year alongside inflation. In Congress, a new law called the Raise the Wage Act has been debated in recent years, failing to make it through each time. The 2021 iteration of this act proposes gradually increasing the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. Proponents suggest that this would benefit workers and narrow both racial and gender pay gaps. The proposed act would begin with raising the minimum wage to $9.50 an hour this year, and then increasing it gradually until it reaches $15 an hour by 2025. After this benchmark, the wage would increase in pace with the median wage in the years that follow. Supporters of raising the federal minimum wage say that this action would benefit 21% of the civilian labor force, about 32 million workers nationwide. Workers could earn, on average, an extra $3,300 a year, which proponents call a quote, tremendous difference in the life of a cashier, home health aide, or fast food worker who today struggles to get by on less than $25,000 a year, unquote. Supporters also say that raising the minimum wage would reverse decades of pay inequity. Supporters have found that both Black and Latinx workers are paid 10 to 15 percent less than white workers with similar experience and education levels. The EPI is the Economic Policy Institute. It suggests that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour will put an additional $3,500 into their pockets each year. Nearly one-third of Black Americans and 26% of Latinx Americans would receive raises if the federal minimum wage grew to $15 an hour. Additionally, the EPI suggests that the majority of workers who would benefit from a higher minimum wage are adult women. 51% of the workers who would benefit are between the ages of 25 and 54. Nearly 60% are women, and more than half of these workers work full-time. Supporters say that more than a quarter of workers who will benefit have children, and 43% have at least some college experience. The EPI found that across the United States, a single adult without children needs at least $31,000 to achieve a modest and adequate standard of living. The average adult working for the federal minimum wage makes less than half of that today. Proponents suggest that the cost of living across the U.S. is far higher than the federal minimum wage can provide. This suggests a discrepancy between a living wage and the minimum wage. When Congress created the minimum wage back in 1938, it was intended to serve as a living wage, providing workers a mandated wage that was greater than the poverty threshold. Today, the federal minimum wage has not been increased to match this living wage, and the discrepancy is seen in communities across the country. The minimum wage was last raised in 2009. Since then, the Center for American Progress reports that the cost of living has risen to erode its value by more than 17%. The disparity between minimum wage and cost of living has increased enormously. For example, quote, there is not a single U.S. state in which a minimum wage worker can afford to rent a two-bedroom home, unquote. 
MIT created a living wage calculator to show what it would cost for adults to move above the poverty threshold in communities nationwide. For example, the cheapest metro area in the U.S. is Brownsville, Harlingen, Texas. According to the calculator, an adult with no children would need to make $12.76 an hour to afford a living wage in this city. This is more than $5 above the federal minimum wage. A living wage is intended to cover average housing, medical, food, and transportation costs. Supporters say that if the national minimum wage does not equate to a living wage in the cheapest city, it cannot be considered a living wage anywhere. Proponents say that many workers across the country struggle to get by on less than $15 an hour today. Essential and frontline workers make up a majority of those workers who will benefit from an increased minimum wage. For example, median pays under this threshold for many essential jobs, including substitute teachers, nursing assistants, and home health aides. The EPI reports that 35% of people working in residential or nursing care facilities would see a pay increase. And overall, 10 million workers in healthcare, education, construction, and manufacturing would see raises, representing nearly a third of workers who would benefit from an increased minimum wage. Second, supporters say that raising the minimum wage would encourage job growth and support businesses. Raising the minimum wage is not without job losses. The Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, projects that potential losses could affect 0.9% of all workers, and young people would experience the biggest loss. The CBO writes, quote, young, less educated people would account for a disproportionate share of those reductions in employment, unquote. However, despite these projected job losses, supporters say that raising the minimum wage would support businesses and job growth more than it would harm them. Other supporters suggest that job losses would not be as high as the CBO projects. Economists say that even a $1.75 raise in the federal minimum wage would increase the aggregate household spending enormously. The Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago predicts that this growth would be approximately $48 billion by the following year, boosting the GDP and leading to job growth. Researchers at UC Berkeley conducted a study in 2018 about minimum wage. They found that raising the minimum wage was good for all, and it did not have any significant negative employment effects. Proponents say that history has demonstrated that raising the federal minimum wage does not constrict employment opportunities. For example, after the minimum wage was increased in 1968, the EPI reports, quote, wages grew and racial earnings gaps closed without constricting employment opportunities for underpaid workers overall, unquote. Or consider this example in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. In 1994, two economists compared employment in the fast food industry after New Jersey raised its minimum wage by 80 cents. Pennsylvania, on the other hand, did not change its minimum wage. The economists observed that job growth in the industry remained similar in both states, finding, quote, no indication that the rise in the minimum wage reduced employment, unquote. These findings were later echoed by two additional economists who reviewed 64 minimum wage studies done throughout the U.S. The authors found, quote, little or no evidence of a negative association between minimum wages and employment, unquote. Aaron Dube is an economist at the University of Massachusetts. He recently conducted an international review about minimum wage and jobs. In this review, he found that for every 1% increase in wages, there is an associated 0.04% decrease in employment. He says that this decrease is, quote, qualitatively close to zero, unquote. It is also one-tenth of the size of the CBO's estimate from earlier this year. Researchers have examined the results of state minimum wage changes between 1979 and 2014. Some supporters say that this research, published in 2019 by the Quarterly Journal of Economics, is considered to be, quote, the most important work on the minimum wage in 25 years, unquote. 
Researchers found that even when raising the minimum wage to reach as high as 55% of the median wage, there was no evidence of job loss for low-wage workers. Additionally, researchers found that groups with greater difficulty finding work, for example, workers without college degrees, young workers, and people of color, still experienced no substantial job losses. The EPI says that raising the minimum wage would benefit millions of workers. This includes about 23.8 million full-time workers, 11.2 million parents, and 5.4 million single parents, lifting them out of the poverty threshold or giving them further income security. This, in turn, would benefit businesses and the economy with increased spending and job stability. Supporters say that by increasing the minimum wage, you encourage employees to stay in their positions for longer periods of time, because simply, they can afford to. This, in turn, leads to lower turnover, which reduces the cost for businesses who are responsible for hiring, onboarding, and training new employees. The cost to recruit, interview, and train new employees can add up quickly for small businesses. The Center for American Progress reports estimates that show, quote, it costs about one-fifth of a worker's annual salary to replace them, and low-wage jobs such as retail and food service are among those with the highest turnover rates, unquote. Supporters say that by raising the minimum wage, business owners may ultimately see cost savings because it will be easier to retain employees over the long term. Additionally, some say that small businesses will benefit because increased wages mean an increased demand for their products. Businesses for a Fair Minimum Wage is a national network for businesses of all sizes. In 2021, they released a statement in support of the Fight for 15, saying, quote, Businesses depend on customers who make enough to buy what they are selling, from food to car repairs. Minimum wage increases will go right back into local economies, helping workers and businesses get through the pandemic and economic crisis, unquote. Alongside a higher demand from customers, the Center for American Progress reports that, quote, small businesses that adopt living wages benefit from a more productive workforce with fewer incidental payroll costs, unquote. Essentially, supporters say that employees who make a fair wage are able and willing to work harder at their jobs. When they are less focused on making ends meet, they are more able to fully commit to their tasks at work. This leads to further investment at work. Proponents suggest that by raising the minimum wage, businesses will naturally increase productivity and quality of service. This in turn allows for a business to raise prices and compensate for higher pay due to the value these workers are providing. Some suggest it could even lead to less absences. Quote, better pay is related to better health outcomes, meaning workers take fewer sick days. It also means that employees are more invested in their work and are less likely to be late, miss a shift, or have other disciplinary problems, unquote. Third, proponents say that raising the minimum wage would aid the economy, reducing public spending and increasing tax revenue. Supporters say that increasing the minimum wage increases the amount of spending in local economies nationwide. A $15 minimum wage would generate $107 billion in higher wages, benefiting communities across the country. Studies suggest that the workers who will benefit from a wage increase are more likely to turn around and spend the money, compared to higher-earning households. This cycle, in turn, injects local economies with ongoing spending, benefiting local businesses and the community as a whole. Increasing the minimum wage gives additional spending power to consumers. The Center for American Progress reports, quote, A study by the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago estimates that a $1 raise for the minimum wage worker translates to an additional $2,080 in consumer spending by their household over the course of a year, unquote. The Institute for Policy Studies projects that for every extra dollar that goes into a low-wage worker's paycheck, about $1.21 is added to the economy at large. Experts suggest that these spending increases fall mainly in household necessities, consumer goods, and dining. 
This in turn boosts small business revenues and injects money into local economies. The EPI says, quote, the number one problem for businesses right now isn't excessive labor costs, it's lack of demand, unquote. The EPI reports that the U.S. economy has grown dramatically in the last 50 years, and that productivity has nearly doubled since the late 1960s. Quote, if the minimum wage had been raised at the same pace as productivity growth since the late 1960s, it would be over $20 an hour today, unquote. By raising the minimum wage to match inflation rates, supporters say that the country would see numerous economic benefits, including, some suggest, lowering the number of people relying on public support. Proponents say that if low-income workers earned more money, it would reduce the number of people who rely on or are eligible for government benefits and public support. Underpaid workers make up approximately 47% of families who rely on these programs because they do not earn enough at work. Supporting these workers through programs like Medicaid and SNAP benefits cost federal and state taxpayers billions of dollars a year. A 2014 report from UC Berkeley found that raising the minimum wage to even $10.10 an hour would reduce SNAP enrollment by up to 3.6 million people. This reduction would decrease program expenditures and taxpayer costs by nearly $4.6 billion. Supporters say that by raising the minimum wage, taxpayers across the country will stop subsidizing corporations who fail to support their workers. It is estimated that taxpayers pay nearly $153 billion in government assistance programs for low-wage workers each year since their employers do not provide adequate wages or benefits. By increasing the minimum wage, proponents suggest that all Americans could save money on taxes, and more than 30 million workers would benefit from higher wages. To recap, supporters of raising the minimum wage say will benefit workers, lifting approximately 32 million people above the poverty threshold or providing them with income security. Proponents suggest it will save businesses money in the long term, reducing turnover and hiring expenses. They say that when a business pays a living wage, employees are more satisfied at work and their productivity increases. Supporters also say that raising the minimum wage will aid the economy, generating more than $100 billion in higher wages and reducing public spending nationwide. After the break, we'll take a look at the opposing side in this debate. Proponents against raising the federal minimum wage say that wage increases will cause businesses to close or lay off workers. Proponents say that increasing the wage will make it more difficult for workers to find jobs or to find better ones. But first, let's take a quick break. And we're back. In 2019, 82.3 million workers in the civilian labor force were paid at hourly rates. The Bureau of Labor Statistics says this accounts for about 58% of all wage and salary workers. Among these workers paid hourly, about 400,000 earned the current federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. About 1.2 million workers were paid less than the federal minimum. Together, they make up about 1.9% of all hourly paid workers. This percentage is down slightly from the year before, 2.1 to 1.9%. It remains well below the peak in 1979, where 13.4% earned at or below the minimum wage. While some Americans support raising the minimum wage, others oppose this increase. To support their argument, they cite the following three reasons. One, increasing the minimum wage is not necessary because these jobs were not intended to be full-time providers. Two, increasing the minimum wage would raise prices for all consumers and effectively raise the poverty threshold. And three, increasing the minimum wage would hurt companies, forcing businesses to lay off employees and potentially shutter completely. Let's take a look at these one by one. 
First, proponents say that increasing the minimum wage is not necessary because these jobs were not intended to be full-time providers. Some suggest that raising the minimum wage will eliminate entry-level jobs. Jared Skorup is the Director of Marketing and Communications at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. He wrote an op-ed in The Hill in January 2021. He says, quote, The value of a minimum wage job isn't primarily the money. It's the experience and skills gained, the stepping stone to the next job, that's the real value. Raising the minimum wage limits the availability of these types of jobs, which means fewer people will get the opportunity to learn these important skills, unquote. Proponents say that eliminating entry-level jobs means less opportunities for low-income workers and households, the very people a proposed minimum wage increase is trying to help. Jack Kelly is the CEO of a recruiting firm. He wrote an op-ed in Forbes saying that raising the minimum wage ultimately hurts, not helps, workers. He writes, quote, In the past, as a society, we had viewed the entry-level jobs as a way to earn some money during school and over the summer. Certain menial jobs were never intended as a means to provide for a family. The minimum wage jobs were primarily an entry point into the workforce. The lower-end job was an ideal place to learn about the real world, how to deal with managers, interact with customers, and gain experience to move on to bigger and better things. Unquote. Proponents say that raising the minimum wage encourages people to stay in certain roles for too long. Jack shares the personal experience of his nephew Matt, who skipped college to continue working at a local deli, and found unexpected consequences five years later. Quote, because he stayed at this minimum wage job for too long, Matt's finding out that he's not very marketable. There isn't a huge demand for a high school educated person with a very narrow food service experience living in a small town. If his pay was lower, it may have served as motivation to seek out other work that offers future growth potential. Unquote. Opponents to raising the minimum wage say that these jobs were not designed to provide for a family. They suggest that these positions are a stepping stone for a career or an opportunity for someone seeking some extra income. Jack writes, quote, we should encourage people to think of these jobs as a starting point towards bigger and better things, unquote. Proponents say that instead of raising the minimum wage, more money should be allocated to training people for positions where there are work shortages. Offering apprenticeships for marketable skills such as trades could be a stepping stone for a financially sustainable future. Second, proponents say increasing the minimum wage would raise prices for all consumers and effectively raise the poverty threshold. Some suggest that a $15 minimum wage would lead to businesses increasing prices to cover labor expenses. These increased prices would then increase the cost of living, furthering the cycle and negating any advantages gained by the raise. A 2004 review of minimum wage studies found that a 10% increase in the federal minimum wage increases food prices by up to 4%. Proponents say that this increase could have big effects for workers and consumers across the country. For example, consider this business in Joplin, Missouri. In 2018, the Associated Press reported that Granny Schaffer's, a restaurant in Joplin, raised its prices between 5 to 20 cents per item to account for the rising minimum wage. While this cost appears low, opponents of raising the minimum wage say it adds up. Mike Wiggins is the owner of this restaurant. He says that these price increases are intended to offset an estimated 10 to 12,000 extra dollars he needs to make payroll each year because of the new state minimum wage law. Mike says, quote, For us, it's very simple. There's no big pot of money out there to get the money out of for required pay raises, unquote. Staff at the restaurant in Missouri are worried about its long-term effects. One waitress says that regulars notice the price increases, and they blame the staff for the prices. She says, quote, they'll back off on something, and it's usually their tips, or they don't come as often, unquote. This observation is backed by some data. Proponents estimate that when costs increase 10%, the total number of sales falls on average 8.1%. Restaurants, for example, lose business when prices rise, even when its competitors are raising prices too. 
Opponents of raising the minimum wage say that businesses pass the higher costs onto customers through price increases, like the case in Missouri. Some point out that this is untenable. Most businesses employing minimum wage workers are small businesses that operate in competitive markets, and thus they have low profit margins. The Heritage Foundation is a conservative think tank. It says, quote, Most minimum wage employers cannot take the entire cost of higher wages out of their profits, even if they wanted to. And if their profit margins fell significantly, many of those small business owners would seek different lines of work. When starting wages rise, these businesses pass the cost on to their customers and employees. Unquote. Some proponents point out that rising costs may affect services more than products. Consider this historical example from the 1970s. Researchers found that the federal minimum wage affected southern businesses more than northern ones 50 years ago due to disparities in cost of living and wages. Quote, the study found that the South's higher effective minimum wage increased service prices. Each 10% difference in the effective minimum wage raised Southern service prices by 2.7%. It had no effect on the prices of manufactured goods, unquote. This finding fits into economic theories of competition. Researchers found that while manufacturers couldn't raise prices without losing customers, services could slowly creep up to cover the difference. Quote, Restaurants and hotels paying higher wages compete with local companies whose costs have also risen. Such companies can and do respond by raising prices, unquote. Proponents also say that some of the rising costs may be unexpected and unintentional. Consider the cost of childcare, which some already consider astronomical in the U.S. The Heritage Foundation found that raising the minimum wage would also raise childcare costs by 21% on average across the country. This rise would add more than $3,700 in childcare costs per year on average for a family with two children, simply due to the increased labor costs for childcare workers. CNBC reports that in 2019, the average early childhood worker earned $11.65 an hour. Proponents suggest that raising the minimum wage will directly impact families around the country. Costs for childcare would increase up to $6,300 each year for families, varying state to state. Rachel Gresler is a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. She says, quote, For single mothers, it's not an option whether or not to work, and yet they would be facing thousands of dollars more in childcare costs per year. That's going to put these women in a bind. Unquote. Additionally, opponents to raising the minimum wage suggest that an increase would essentially raise the poverty threshold. And often, they say, many people living in poverty aren't working these low-wage jobs in the first place. Some say that the majority of those who benefit from raising the minimum wage are teenagers and college students, not income earners for low-income families. Some studies report that a majority of minimum wage earners are between 16 and 24. Additionally, these studies report that more than 60% of minimum wage earners work part-time. Proponents suggest that many minimum wage workers are often the second, third, or fourth income earners in a family. Jarrett writes in the Hill op-ed, quote, A hike in the minimum wage won't help those in poverty. In fact, it is likely to make it harder for them to find a job, the real ticket out of poverty, unquote. Jarrett suggests that raising the minimum wage will not benefit the lowest paid workers. Instead, he says that it merely shifts wealth around. Quote, the lowest skilled workers tend to be the lowest paid workers, and they'll suffer the most consequences. The American Enterprise Institute compared the earnings of low-wage workers in states that boosted their minimum wage with those who did not, and found little or no difference in pay growth between the different sets of states. Unquote. Essentially, he says that wages do not rise because of government mandates, but instead based on broad-based economic growth. Proponents also point out that previous studies show that poverty levels didn't massively decrease with previous wage increases. 
When the federal minimum wage increased to $7.25, a review found that only 15% of workers who benefited lived in low-income households. Some researchers suggest that if the wage was raised to just $9.50 today, only 11% of workers who would benefit live in these households. The Cato Institute is a libertarian think tank. In 2012, it published a review examining minimum wage laws. It found, quote, Since 1995, eight studies have examined the income and poverty effects of minimum wage increases, and all but one have found that past minimum wage hikes had no effect on poverty, unquote. Opponents suggest that when some workers do see wage increases, their hours and employment decline. The Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland reports that, quote, The combined effect of these changes is a decline in earned income. Minimum wages increase the proportion of families that are poor or near poor, unquote. Dr. George Reisman is an economist at Pepperdine University. He explains this effect happens because of the relationship between wages and prices. He says, quote, The higher wages are, the higher costs of production are. The higher costs of production are, the higher prices are. The higher prices are, the smaller quantities of goods and services demanded, and the number of workers employed in producing them, unquote. Studies suggest that raising the minimum wage can lift some employees above the poverty threshold but only if they continue to work the same number of hours as they did before the raise. The Heritage Foundation reports some researchers have found that the minimum wage has no statistically detectable effect on poverty rates. For example, they cite a study that examined minimum wage effects on families with low incomes. The researchers concluded, quote, The answer we obtained to the question of whether minimum wage increases reduce the proportion of poor and low-income families is a fairly resounding no. The evidence on both family income distributions and changes in incomes experienced by families indicates that minimum wages raise the incomes of some poor families, but that their net effect is to increase the portion of families that are poor and near poor, Opponents say that raising the minimum wage causes businesses to reduce the number of workers they employ and the number of hours these employees work. Some estimates suggest that for each 10% increase in the minimum wage, employment in affected groups decreases by about 2%. The Heritage Foundation says, quote, a higher minimum wage helps only those workers who actually wind up earning that wage and further disadvantages lower-income workers who suffer fewer job opportunities and working hours. Though intended to help low-income families get ahead, the minimum wage instead costs some of their jobs and others hours at work. This leaves poor families actually worse off, unquote. Third, proponents say that increasing the minimum wage would hurt companies, forcing businesses to lay off employees and potentially shutter completely. The CBO recently found that raising the minimum wage would cost 1.7 million jobs. This loss would affect nearly 1% of workers in the civilian labor force. Some opponents to raising the minimum wage say that a wage increase would benefit big business and hurt the little guy. Jarrett writes in his Hill op-ed, quote, Big corporate firms can more easily absorb these mandated costs and can invest in new technologies that make them less dependent on human labor. The same cannot be said of the small businesses competing with these firms, so big businesses ultimately can benefit when governments raise costs, unquote. Additionally, some suggest that small and mid-sized businesses are disproportionately hurt by wage increases. Jack wrote in his Forbes op-ed, quote, The local neighborhood stores and businesses with razor-thin profits will be forced to raise prices to make up for the additional labor costs. With the increased prices, customers may elect to take their business elsewhere. Losing customers means losing income, which could result in the business having to lay off workers, unquote. Consider this example from San Francisco. 
A 2014 study in San Francisco found that nearly 40% of employers who paid the current minimum wage would lay off some employees if the wage was increased to 1010. More than half of businesses, 54%, reported they would decrease hiring levels. San Francisco's Office of Economic Analysis reports that an increase to $15 an hour would reduce employment levels by more than 15,000 private sector jobs across the city. Looking internationally, some economists equate minimum wages with higher unemployment in the first place. Dr. Stephen Hankey is an economics professor at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Hankey did a survey of EU countries with and without minimum wages. He found that 21 countries with a minimum wage had an average unemployment of 11.8%. On the other hand, the seven countries without a minimum wage had about a third lower unemployment rate, 7.9% on average. A 2013 Gallup poll found that 46% of small business owners supported raising the minimum wage from $7.25 to $9.50. On the other hand, 60% of owners said it would hurt most small business owners. Almost half of business owners, 45%, said that increasing the minimum wage would cause them to, quote, reduce their workforce, reduce worker benefits, reduce capital spending, or some combination thereof, unquote. Consider this example from New York City. In 2019, New York City raised the minimum wage from $13 to $15 per hour for businesses that employ 11 or more people. For those earning tips, the minimum base pay rose to $10 an hour. But if workers do not earn the overall minimum wage after tips, employers are required to make up the difference. Following this new law, a study by the New York City Hospitality Alliance found that 75% of full-service restaurants plan to cut employee hours. Nearly half, 47%, plan to cut jobs entirely because of the wage increases. These planned decreases came after a previously rough year. In 2018, 77% of full-service restaurants reduced employee hours, and more than a third cut jobs, also in response to mandated wage increases. Some opponents of raising the minimum wage say that these policies limit opportunity for workers and harm small businesses as a whole. The NFIB is the National Federation of Independent Business. It says this minimum wage increase falls disproportionately on small employers who are less likely to have the cash reserves or profit margins to absorb the increased costs. Bill Smith is the NFIB state director in Wisconsin. He says, quote, When all is said and done, raising the minimum wage actually puts very little disposable income into workers' pockets. To the contrary, for those who are victims of fewer hours or lost job opportunities, those workers will actually earn less, unquote. Two Harvard researchers found that restaurants with medium reviews, about 3.5 stars on Yelp, have a 14% chance of closing for every dollar added onto the minimum tipped wage. Proponents say closing these restaurants not only hurts the restaurant owners and workers, but also the community at large. Quote, Many of those establishments operate in underserved communities where money is tight and restaurant goers have few affordable options. Business owners should be able to enter the marketplace without a boatload of cash, and customers shouldn't be stripped of their access to inexpensive dining, unquote. Proponents say that raising the minimum wage is divisive within the small business community, and when expanding out to look at larger businesses, concerns are very similar. Jamie Richardson is the vice president of the fast food chain White Castle. In 2013, he suggested that a $15 minimum wage would force the company's hand to close up half of its locations, laying off thousands of workers. Proponents say that when the wages increase, businesses need to make tough choices. If it does not lay off staff, the next choice is either raising prices for customers or cutting back on perks for employees. For example, businesses may cut back on benefits like paid parking, mass transit discounts, and retirement contributions. The University of Washington conducted a series of studies based on raising the minimum wage. 
Researchers found that Seattle's initial increase to $11 an hour had an insignificant effect on employment, but the rise to $13 an hour brought about a large drop. They report, quote, the higher minimum wage led to a 6.9% decline in the hours worked for those earning under $19 an hour, resulting in a net reduction in paychecks, unquote. Some opponents suggest that raising the minimum wage encourages companies to shift to technology rather than human workers. When coupling wage increases with insurance costs, turnover, and recruiting, some businesses have decided it's easier and less expensive to rely on technology like self-checkouts. Some proponents say that higher wages come with unintended consequences. There are less jobs for those who need them most. To recap, proponents against a $15 minimum wage say that increasing the minimum wage is not necessary because these jobs were not intended to be full-time jobs for extended periods of time. Proponents suggest that increasing the minimum wage would raise prices for all consumers and effectively raise the poverty threshold. Additionally, opponents suggest that a wage increase would hurt companies, forcing businesses to lay off employees and potentially shutter completely, thus raising unemployment levels. On the other hand, supporters of raising the minimum wage say it will benefit workers, lifting approximately 32 million people above the poverty threshold or providing them income security. Proponents suggest that it will save businesses money in the long term, reducing turnover and hiring expenses. They say that when a business pays a living wage, employees are more satisfied at work and their productivity increases. Supporters also say that raising the minimum wage will help aid the economy, generating more than $100 billion in higher wages and reducing public support spending nationwide. But what do you think? Would a $15 minimum wage cripple the economy or help it grow? Does raising the minimum wage help or harm small businesses? Is it the government's responsibility to step in and mediate private business affairs? Or should businesses be solely responsible for taking care of its workers? Let me know your thoughts on these questions or anything I talked about in this week's episode by shooting me a text or leaving me a voicemail. You can reach We the Voters at 773-658-9492. You can also email me at wethevotersproject at gmail.com. A quick heads up, your stories and reactions may be used in an upcoming episode or another part of the We the Voters site. Let's stay in touch between episodes. I keep this conversation going on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at We the Voters Project, on Twitter at Hi We the Voters, and on Instagram at We the Voters. We the Voters is a project funded by people like you. If you like what you heard today, please consider supporting this work with a one-time or monthly donation. You can donate on patreon.com slash we the voters or via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. Shoot me an email if you'd like to learn more. You can also support We the Voters without spending a dime. Please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or tell a friend about the show. Snap a screenshot of this episode and tag me on Instagram or Facebook. These are quick ways that can make a big impact in helping this project grow. Thank you so much for considering supporting this project and sharing this work. Sharing We the Voters with you means so much to me. Everything I talked about in this week's episode is linked in the show notes. You can find them on the blog at wethevotersproject.com. I'll be back here in your feed next Wednesday with another discussion about U.S. culture. But until then, I'm Emily Kate, and this was We the Voters. <laughs>